Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. Andrea Roberts. And it's a funny story how she ended up here, right? Y'all must understand, she VIP, right? She out here busy. She, you know, building castles, you know what I mean? Communicating with the people. I'm telling you the real story, right? I was doing some research around the time last year when we did the show on Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street. And I stumbled upon Dr. Andrea Roberts' research. And I was like, OMG, I had no idea that in my hometown of Texas, in my home state of Texas, in my hometown of Bryan College Station, that there was so much history. In the process, in parallel, we're going through all of this historic things in my family about, you know, we we, mm-hmm. we kind of like have 0.4 Cherokee and, you know, we kind of black and, and then we got this land and we got to, you know, sign up. And it's been a nightmare to figure out what is going on. But then I stumble upon the research of Dr. Andrea Roberts when she was at Texas A&M. And Texas A&M is like, you know, you know, Chapel Hill. It's like it's a one horse town. It's it's like you have the university and you got everybody else who support the university. I was so, 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 so humbled to realize in my own hometown, this research had been done. And this is so I said this love letter to Dr. Andrew Rodden. Like, you must understand, you know, you know, I must like, yeah, I know I like to uh, embellish a little bit. I'm like, you know. The, you know, A&M is known for football, but Dr. Andrew Roberts, that don't mean nothing. It's really about your research and you're bigger than the SEC. Yes, I wrote that because I'm trying to get on the show, right? I do hard work, y'all, to get the speakers here. But anyway, that's all my story. I would like to introduce you guys, Dr. Andrea Roberts. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And I I have to um, ask your forgiveness in advance. I have a little puppy and he only waits until right when I'm on the screen where he decides that it's time for him to go out the door. So he has decided that it has to be right now. So <laughs> I'm gonna keep talking, but I'm gonna have to go off screen and let the door open for him. So please forgive That is totally fine. Well, I tell you what you can do, go ahead and handle that. And okay. we'll just kind of talk a little bit while you handle that. And since we live, I'll just edit it out. Okay, so, perfect. You know, the, the cool thing, uh, uh, Dr. Dale Green, is just really last year, of really beginning to open this. And one of the things that I discovered that I didn't realize was that, you know, I think National Geographic had did, you know, a movie, um, a documentary, excuse me. In addition to that, I didn't realize so much work. And this is what I've discovered in my own observation. I like to research before the show. Mm. That a lot of the historic black towns that we didn't even know existed are now somewhat if you're lucky, consider historic districts. I lived in uh, Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill for a while, and they would always talk about um, what's that area called, Katie? The uh, I, I forget what it's called, but it's a district there, right? And I was like, I never understood. I'm like, why are people so so in love with this district? I had no idea that that district that they were so concerned about was a black town and settlement that was pretty much engulfed 
by another city, Durham, North Carolina. And all they had that remained is one, a community center and two, a sign that says Haytai Heritage Center is what they call it. The Haytai area, that's all remained. So I began to realize, OMG, there is a Ooh. lot of history there. Dr. Andrea, are you back? I am. I am. Just know that if you hear some scurrying in the background, it's it's puppies. And I'm oh, trying to totally that. fine. Tell, tell us about the puppies. Yeah. What type of puppies are they? are they? I have um a Shih Tzu and a long-haired Chihuahua. Oh. Those are my babies. And I love them, but I also like for them to not make noise. <laughs> Yeah, I think those dogs sound like divas to me. I'm just saying. They, they are. That's, I, you know, they're my babies. So. I, I've been watching some YouTubes or uh, TikToks lately. And uh, do you do the thing where they kind of feed them the mix of fresh vegetables? And oh, I'm not proteins? that bad. You're not that bad? Not, okay. No, I'm too busy. I'm trying to make sure I get my vegetables. That's hard enough. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Dr. Andrew Robbins, do you mind, you know, just telling us who you are sure. and what you do and giving us just a little bit of background about who you are? Yes. So uh, I was born in Sugarland, Texas. Um, I'm originally a Texan. I am a sixth generation, if not seventh generation Texan. Um, at the founding of the Republic of Texas, um, that's where my roots go in the state. Um, and I would say that um, I really identify as a scholar, Black woman. Um, a daughter of Patricia and granddaughter of Lily Bell and great granddaughter of Hester Allen, all of whom have roots in these places called freedom colonies. And, you know, this consciousness about that rootedness came very, you know, late in life. And so, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of not give a speech or a presentation, but to really just kind of talk and chat about what this journey is and what it's awesome. been. Well, you know, a part of your story, I love the part of your story where you talk about six generations, right? And how you ended up on this. Did you kind of like grow up like hearing these stories? Like, how did you get to the point where you're like actually decided to do research on a topic? Because that sounds like a big gap, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, I have 10 years between each of my degrees. I'm not someone who's a um, person who just said, okay, I've got my undergraduate degree. Here's my master's and my PhD and just go straight through. I have 10 years experience between each degree in all types of walks of life, industries, et cetera. And uh, it came to a point in my life that it, it, for a lot of us in our 30s, you begin to lose people important to you in your life. And then you have a glimpse at, um, I don't want to be dramatic and say your mortality, but just sort of that you're a link in a chain. It's not just about you. You're a link in a chain, a lineage. And you begin to want to explore a few links back in the chain. I begin to spend time in a family cemetery. And I'll never forget, I turned to someone I was visiting, my aunt, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother. I had forgotten that all these people were in the same place. And I looked around, I was like, oh, my people are here. And I never had that consciousness. And I turned to someone who was there and he's like, oh, we're not related. We're related through slavery. And that really kind of blew my mind for a few reasons. One, I didn't know about this person. I'd never seen him before. Uh, two, that that kind of relatedness is a very 
um, problematic way to say that we're all related, even though it's mostly true. There's a different kind of relatedness we have and that I was seeing in the in the cemetery. But I wasn't hearing in the consciousness of anyone. No one was explaining to me why is this entire Black cemetery here surrounded by uh, all of these uh, middle to upper middle class to elite suburbs right outside of Houston. You know, why is this um, here and called uh, the Farmers Improvement Society Cemetery? I looked on these programs, funeral programs. I said, what is Farmers Improvement Society? Like, I've never heard of that. And like, it seems like kind of a big deal. And like, why is that here? And I'm getting to ask my grandmother, what is that? And she said, I don't know. It's just been in the bottom of our programs for years. I found out what it stood for. They went on, you know, called each other to try to remember. It was Farmers Improvement Society. I began to research Farmers Improvement Society. It's a mutual aid society that had representation across three different states. Um, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, 21,000 members were African-Americans in primarily rural areas were sharing information about how to get free of the sharecropping system, how not to rely on credit, um, how to buy food cooperatively. It was a real like, you know, Black Power 10 point plan, except from the 1880s. And I was like, whoa, 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 what is this? So this cemetery was one of hundreds founded by the people who started this mutual aid society first in Texas and then through those three states. One of the sources I bumped into or came across when I was reading about Farmers Improvement Society was in this book called Texas Freedom Colonies. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, yeah, this is cool. This mutual aid society is cool and everything, but okay, wait, there's a list of places in the back. What, what, what is all this world of hundreds of places? And then I saw the names of the places I grew up in, in the book, but these were not names we gave to those places in a way that we say Atlanta. It was more the names we give to places in hushed tones or that we give to places um, or we overhear people giving to the places that we went to, or it's the name of the church or it's the name of the cemetery. And so this white author had gone through the trouble of going through one database of where he saw a bunch of abandoned towns and where he assumed that they might be black places. But I was like, okay, one, how do we know this to be true? Like there's a list of names here and people are gonna treat this like a directory, but what are the stories of these places? Where are they? Who are the founders? How do these places come about? And he had some of that information in his book, but I was like, there's hundreds of places in the back here. And some of those places are places that I came from. And that's when I came across a particular settlement that was mentioned in the book. Someone told me, hey, I know you're interested in these black places. Here's a black place called Shankleville, way in deep East Texas. And I think that this would be a place you'd be interested in studying more. University of Texas at Austin, I'm in my first year trying to get my PhD. They tell me about Shankleville, that they have this cool festival every year. And I'm like, okay, I'll go out to the festival. And I went out there and I felt in as if I were in a place out of time. And that means, you know, removed. 
as if I was going to a portal into another plane of existence. And it was just a rural place behind the pine curtain. That's what we call East Texas. We say it's behind the pine curtain because of all of the pine trees that you see driving there. And finally, five hour drive later, I made it to Shankleville from Austin. And it was um, idyllic, but also uh, empty, you know, where you're like, okay, there's incredible history here, but there's also very few people here until you go to homecoming, until you go to their annual heritage festival. And that's what I started doing. I started to see more of an asset-based approach to understanding these places. What makes them powerful? How do they persist? Uh, what what are their issues, but what are they doing in real time to address the challenges they have to retaining land ownership, to stewarding the remaining historical sites and, and cemeteries? So it was that kind of two, three-year journey of feeling drawn away from this professional life to going into um, doctoral study. I, my PhD is in community and regional planning and getting really interested in this history of planning and history of placemaking that was incredibly white and absent any of the things I've just described to you. And then I got a little bit obsessed <laughs> with trying to correct that. Awesome. Awesome. You know, as you're speaking, I'm going through my own experience. Our family reunion, we're in East Texas. And it would take somewhere about eight to 12 hours. I can't remember a long time to get there. Mm. And it would be my grandfather's side of the family. And I remember all of this excitement to go to this place that literally a family reunion of 50 to 100 people would essentially book all of the hotels right. in the city. And I like the way you describe it beyond the, um, the pine um, you know, curtain. Because when I got out there as a young person, I was like, I don't understand why we have to go out here. It's hot. They don't have any AC. Yes, it's very hot. Hotels. <laughs> and yeah. all they have is this thing. And I looked up. It's like this big thing you put in the window and you put water in it and it blows, you know, air. And it, it, it was just a lot. And I grew up a lot of yes. the time saying, OK, well, we got to do this because grandpa's side of the family. And he very particular about the sound of the family. We got to go to the family reunion. Yes, but I had zero appreciation. But the way you describe these places is a lot of excitement, a lot of emotion, a lot of history. But when you show up, you don't understand unless I like the way you describe it, unless it's one of those festivals. I, I, you just took me on the journey there. Thank you for sharing that. Tell me this. What do you consider some of the biggest challenges facing black settlements in Texas? And how does your work with the Texas Freedom Colonies Project address some of these challenges? So uh, I would say that the way that I engage in my work is from the perspective of someone who's worked in urban planning, public finance, government administration, housing for several years, right? So I've worked for government, I've worked for private sector, I've worked for nonprofit agencies. And so I, I wasn't coming to this with this kind of, you know, tabula rasa, like, oh, if the world could just be different and people could care. I have a very deep understanding of the way things actually work or really fail to work. So the way that I approach 
uh, studying these places and understanding these places is with an eye on change. It's an eye on, okay, these are significant communities and I'm noticing disproportionate impacts on these communities. So the, the disproportionate impacts come in particularly with land retention and land loss and tidal instability. And those issues are important, not just because, and people tell you flippantly, you should keep your land. Well, people don't understand what it means to keep land. It means having an estate plan. And if they do understand, just to be clear, not everybody has access or money uh, to engage in estate planning or get a land survey. So we have a lack of access to legal assistance and resources. We have land and title instability because at the time that people attain land, they did it through adverse possession or squatting. It just means that people made use of the land and began to pay taxes on the land, right? Um, but they just told their children, hey, when I go, everybody gets this. That's not a will. That's called intestate. And 70 to 75% of all Black-owned land is intestate, meaning it's in a state where you cannot uh, sell it, make use of it, take control of it when your loved one passes on because you don't have proper legal standing. And someone tells you, oh, you have this land over here somebody left for you. Okay, thanks for the story. So the big problem with freedom colonies and land is because we have this land instability and people are selling off pieces of it, buying off buying pieces of it, you don't have the same settlement pattern anymore. You don't have the same boundaries. You don't have the same presence there anymore. And for those that are there, and if they're in an area where there's a lot of growth and sprawl around them, then the taxes are going up and people are not able to afford the taxes and they don't know about all the tax breaks that other people know about. They're aware of, oh, well, if this is designated agricultural land or forest land. What are the different tax benefits that are available to me so that I can afford to pay the taxes and retain ownership of the land? I mean, for some people, it's like they figure out, okay, I just need to plant a patch of watermelon and that counts as agricultural you know, land use. And then my taxes go down by 70%. Um, those kind of, it's a, it's a knowledge gap. So the big challenge is a knowledge gap, legal gap, estate planning gap. Because when you lose the land, you lose the presence, you lose the control over the place. And without clear title, you also can't get a national recognition. Let's say you want to get something recognized as a district. Let's say you want to get it recognized and protected, not available to you if you can't produce clear title. Um, there have been some changes with FEMA to where you can show other evidence of your residency, but very often you're in a disaster. And most of these places were founded in place with places with very low lying land. We used to call that the bottom. And what the bottom really means, if you live in the bottoms, that from a landscape perspective, that means this is below sea level or close to the water's edge and prone to what? Flooding. So you're trying to get help after a hurricane, after flooding, you don't have clear title. So you can't maintain the house. You can't get 
the recovery funds to maintain your house or that process is slowed down significantly. So the ripple effect of this instability around land ownership and profitable, sustainable use, because people are cutting down trees and then you run out of trees because <laughs> you're trying to pay taxes. We need you know, sustainable uses. And then the other pieces around cemeteries and uh, threats to uh, other historic sites like churches and lodges, what's remaining of these places, because the big challenge is very often Department of Transportation wants to put through a road or a developer comes in and decides, I'm going to put a big plan development here. Well, they don't see anyone around and they decide they have full right to do that. And then they say, well, I tried to find landowners and they're not here. Well, where are the landowners? Well, the Texas landowners may very well be in Atlanta. They may be in California. They may be anywhere, right? And so we're wondering why people are accidentally finding things. And that's where Texas Freedom Colonies Project comes in. I got tired of people accidentally finding things um, because they would act and then say sorry later. And what I was really focused on is how do we take away the excuse, meaning let's make it visible, the approximate location of where these places were so that it would signal to developers, government officials, whomever, you know, you've got an atlas and you've got all these resources, but this information's not in there. And it's not just about adding to your atlas. It's about having a place where people can share information and proof of place in a language that they're comfortable sharing it in. So it's not just I go do the historical research. It's how do I work with people to amass the different types of historical data they have? You have a funeral program. You have a map somebody drew one time. You have a church anniversary uh, program booklet. You have a homecoming booklet. Um, you have a church um, map or, or a cemetery map, rather. All of these puzzle pieces aggregated together and with a little paragraph written about them begin to give us a picture of the place. But there's not, there wasn't until the Atlas a place where we could start to try to put all of those pieces together to make these places visible, not just so we remember the past, but that we help people protect what's left, right? And give people a sense of what was there. So if they want to return, if they want to reclaim, they have a, a place to where they can see that story visualized and mapped. Wow. I love, love, love that story. And I tell you why. Is the term you use, title instability, land instability, it's so close to home. I know when I find myself talking to family members and there's this word of mouth type culture, this word of mouth type culture is that, hey, you know, it's going to happen. And then, you know, I'm over here, you know, in a different state and I I yeah. see this land squatting type behavior. And I'm like, huh, how does that work? Or even more so, I see this gentleman's agreement. I'm like, well, how does that work? Right. How? Yes. How does that work? Right. Is what yes, you're asking. Yes, yes. And I'm like, <clears throat> and I see so much, so much opportunity for things to be lost. And I love how you connected the, the dots because we've talked a lot about estate planning. 
But the way you mentioned estate planning in the context of don't ever sell the land, estate planning through the perspective of you can't just say, hey, we got some land, you got to protect it with physical paperwork, with physical documentation, with physical things that formal bodies and organization recognize. And I always knew in my heart of hearts, I'm like, I don't think this gentleman's agreement is going to translate anywhere. It's not, and it doesn't. And, you know, and then the piece I want to add here, which is really significant, and it's really part of what you're doing with this show, is trying to create spaces where we can comfortably have these conversations and not have shame around what we know, don't know, Um, speak freely, uh, ask questions, uh, and really try to relate it back to our own life experiences. And I try to create spaces for that as well. So the other purpose of Texas Freedom College Project is disseminating information about where people can try to find free legal assistance. Universities have free legal clinics. We have a page called Black Land, and it has basic vocabulary. What is title? You know, what what is title? Uh, What is, you know, intestacy? What is... um, uh, probate. So we try to really break it down for folks so that they know exactly the language of this world of land, right? Before you even get to an attorney who may tell you you need to pay them some exorbitant fee because you don't even know the language. You don't know what these terms mean. So we try to create a level playing field for folks going into this world of how do I get a historic marker? How do I make sure I have clear title? Uh, how do I Um, make sure I'm getting market price um, if someone's buying me out or they claim imminent domain. Um, How All of these kind of baseline questions about preservation and land use, we try to also educate in a number of different ways through our website and our YouTube channel. Awesome, awesome. Tamika's going to share that in the chat of not only how you can connect with the speaker, but how you can essentially gain access to the resources available at the Texas Freedom Colonies Project website. Tell me about this, Dr. Andrew, is I love not only that you have done research, you have built a whole community as I see it, where you have worked with descendants of communities. And what role would you say that your work has really outreached to communities? I I feel that there's some protection. I feel that there's some education. What, you know, I would love to hear some stories of maybe some people you've worked with like, I can only imagine how many testimonies you've encountered. So, oh gosh, yeah. Um, I have had conversations today. So I'm just, <laughs> you know, I I support uh, one descendant that holds a statewide co- a conference for freedom colonies every year. And it's a, called the IA Symposium. And the symposium is going to be June 8th in Dallas. And so um, we're on the in the group talking Someone gets on the line and they're having a challenging day and they just came from a funeral. So we top everything and pray. So, you know, it's grounded in relationship is the point. Yes, we're having a meeting and we got to figure out who's the speaker and that sort of stuff. But it's grounded in relationship. Everything that I do, I try to ground it in that as much as possible. Um, And that's with the person who has spearheaded that effort is the woman that I met in Shankleville. And so here it is, ooh, are we at nine years? 
nine years since I've met her and we're still texting and phone. <laughs> and she's a big part of the book. And, you know, it was that encounter with her and that affirmation that um, something needed to be done in the way of asserting this freedom colony identity, going to her settlement, seeing the power of story and oral tradition um, used in a strategic way. So it's not just word of mouth, but it's how do we draw people back to place and use our story of our beginnings to mobilize. So it was their freedom colony story, which was about two enslaved people, man and woman. The woman was sold away to uh, a master in Texas and they reunited when he swam three great rivers to reunite with her at a spring in Shankleville community. And it's that spring where they have libation ceremonies. I told them, I said, oh, you're doing a libation ceremony. They're like, okay, whatever you call it, we drink the spring water in honor of our ancestors. I was like, that's what it is. Uh, <laughs> we, we remember, right? We do these things. And so I went and witnessed them drinking the water from the spring where Winnie Shankel kept food for Jim Shankel. He had just tried to find her. And so they were hidden away. And it's a few feet from this very spot that they actually founded, Jim and Winnie Shankel founded Shankleville community, where their great uh, grandchild's home that he built with his own hands is on the National Register of Historic Places. Is It's a regular little 1924 house that is right next to that spring with little outbuildings and a little church. And the way that they have cultivated that story to keep people connected to place, land, and ritual um, really has shaped my approach to everything I do. And the centrality of story is in part because of finding the way that they use story to mobilize it. So everything that I've been doing since is trying to learn the way people mobilize around their history. When I say mobilize, that means how does hearing something make you do something? Knowledge to action. How does hearing about the story make you want to learn more about the story enough to travel to want to go to the site of the story? And then upon hearing the site begin to develop an attachment that then motivates you to act not only by yourself, but in concert with others, and then become in, you know, invested enough to take an action. Everything from donating a dollar to trying to rebuild the homestead. So that was that initial story and seeing the stories, um, life in action, you know, um, that really has helped propel me forward in the work I do and has put such an emphasis on listening to stories. Awesome. You know, here at Southern Soul, we love stories, right? Mm. And a part of what we do is we capture these digital stories. And it's awesome to kind of hear how you're also listening for stories. And I like the way you describe it. It's like, it's not just a story. It begins to mobilize people to, like you said, go so far to visit that place, to document that place, to drink the water, right, of that place. And it sounds so, 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 so awesome. Let's talk about 
what's next. Let's talk about, uh, I'm excited to talk about your forthcoming book, but before we talk about that, let's talk about the future of the Texas Freedom Colonies. You've recently relocated to Virginia, and I have no idea what that means. So I'm like, what's she doing in Virginia? Like, I'm minding my business, right? But, you know, I'm feeling some kind of way. I'm like, why is she going to leave Texas, right? And I know you're a thousand times. Tell me about the Texas Freedom Colonies Project and how that connects with the work that you're doing in Virginia, because it sounds like it sounds like you're very strategic and you're very intentional. And I've noticed that you're still working with the Texas Freedom Colonies and you're continuing that work in Virginia. Tell us about what's next for you. Tell about the future. So, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning um, in your discussions with Dr. Green, you said, you know, there's all these settlements in Oklahoma I didn't know about. Um, there are all these communities uh, that maybe we've only heard whispers about. There's Black Towns, there's Mount Bayou, there's, um, you know, in Virginia, in this very area where I am, I'm about in a three county area, there's some 50 plus historic Black settlements surrounding the homes of former presidents where these people were once enslaved. And so this is a place where a descendant community and understanding the relationship between land and power and slavery is front and center. So this is a place that's anxious to really continue to do that work. That is the sole work that the university is trying to do, its own rootedness. The University of Virginia campus is a plantation. Um, it's in Charlottesville. It's it is a plantation. It's Thomas Jefferson's university. He owns 600 people. So when people say, did they have a little? No, Thomas Jefferson had 600 people. He owned them and he had 5000 acres. So so what does that have to do with Texas Freedom Colonies? Texas Freedom Colonies is part one. Meaning there's a model here. How do we aggregate information, meaning keep safe and keep in one place information that comes from descendants about their own places. And then how do we begin to study that data to see patterns or trends? Um, how do we institutionalize the use of that data by planners and preservationists? Those are some of the things that we've been able to do in Texas. Why would we say Texas gets to have all the fun? The idea is that the Center for Cultural Landscapes, um, which I'm co-director of right now, becomes a space to where we grow this engagement work. The engagement of the university with descendant communities in confronting these issues of white supremacy, institutionalized racism, lack of access to resources. There's a reason why we are situated the way we are vis-a-vis historic preservation, public history, so what I am attempting to do in going to the University of Virginia is one, go to a university where this is subject matter that the president of the university is talking about. This is a different space to try to do the work. I have proximity to Washington, DC, so that when we're talking about trying to get access to funds and support, I'm closer to where the decisions are made. Um, so there's work here to be done in Virginia. There's an expansion of the work to be done and there's a model that I hope to propagate. And the two big parts of what I do that I wanna propagate are not just the engagement, but it's the centrality of oral tradition and what we call intangible heritage 
Intangible heritage is us listening to Frankie Beverly and Mays and knowing that that's what really ties us together as millennial Gen X folks. Like we all hear that and we, that that's intangible heritage, but you're like, no, that I could feel that. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's, that's technically called intangible heritage. How do we make that tan, intangible heritage something that can tangibly help us be seen and heard? Um, particularly as these settlements and their descendant communities are leaving, dying and living in diaspora. Meaning, you know, you're, you know, you're in Atlanta, you're in Oklahoma, but you're from Texas. So I'm very interesting in looking at our dual and multiple citizenship in my research. So if I'm in Virginia, I am talking to people all the time where I bump into them and they say, hey, you know, I'm from this freedom colony in Texas. Or they call me from California and say, what do you know about this freedom colony in Texas? We are a complex people and everywhere we are is the South. We have multiple Souths. Everywhere a Black person is in the South, I don't care if you're in Michigan. So what I'm hoping to do here forward is really incubate an opportunity for people who are growing these kind of endeavors of documentation and visibility of Black settlements and engagement work and storytelling to have a place where they can call upon research, researchers, resources, and really our whole direction is growing more researchers. How do I get the resources out for other people to do the work? Texas has 254 counties. We have a name of 557 places. I am a full-time tenured professor and I am a woman of the world. And uh, I got into this to have a life of the mind and to do justice work. And I made a decision that this was not justice work that I just wanted to do in Texas, though it's important to do it there. I want to do it everywhere, especially the Americas. So what's next is geographical expansion, depth, uh, better technology, better ease of use on the platforms, um, and really trying to make connections and being a space where people can come if they've done this work and they wanna meet and connect with other people trying to do this kind of preservation and public history work. And the Center for Cultural Landscapes is based in UVA School of Architecture. Awesome, awesome. I love it, I love it. I knew you would convince me, I already knew it. You know, and I love it because- <laughs> I'm glad to convince you. <laughs> you know. It's a leap, it's a leap. It is. It's but, but a, you it know, is. it was it was a leap, but it was a great opportunity. And to be frank with you, um, you know, this is a high a school of architecture is held in high esteem at UVA. Um, it's got one of the oldest, no, the oldest program in the country in mm -hmm. architecture, and an African American dean. And uh, you don't see that every day in my field. And um, you've got a president, President Jim Ryan, who's very, very interested in equity and fairness and dealing with a challenging legacy of race and what that means for the university going forward. So if people at least want to have, I want to be somewhere where people want to have the conversation. I don't, I, I am at a point in life where some people, they're calling is to be in a place where people don't want to have the conversation and try to get them to have the conversation. Noble calling, those people are awesome. I love them. I'm thankful. My calling is go somewhere where people do want to have a conversation and make sure those resources and that support is able to um, 
be made available to to those who don't have it. I love it. I love it. I, I love those seasons. But, you know, I, I love what you said because I begin, I, I love a strategy. I love a intentional approach. I love how you are taking the things that you've built, the things that, and I, I love to joke about this East Coast, I call it. And I jokingly call Virginia the, the area where there's George Washington kids is what I call them, right? And it's there's so much history. There's so it's much history there. Overflowing. Yes, 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 yes. And 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 I love it because you've strategically made a move that in my eyes, it begins to say, wow, she's built a model in Texas that works. And now she's going to explore that. And one thing I've discovered, because when I started digging into this last year, when I did the um, 13 towns of Oklahoma, I discovered that there was all of these small groups, Alabama, Mississippi, then somewhere in Texas, and then somewhere in Oklahoma, and then somewhere in, I was like, wait a minute, and they had this consortium over here that meets, but they don't know this group over there, and they don't know this group over there, and I was like, wow, we're yes. reinventing the wheel over and over again, but there's no opportunity, so kudos to you and your work, because I began to see you being creating research that's the foundation that generations and researchers can continue to use over and over again. Let's talk about your awesome book. I love it. I love it. The forthcoming book, y'all, it ain't ready yet. We're going to have to put some pressure on the good doctor to get the book out. But the title of the book is called Never Sell the Land. Oh, Lord, I know y'all heard this before. I, I'm going through this with my own family. I'm, I'm hearing all of the work we're doing, the the reverse engineering, somebody that squatted on our land and, and, and you know, mm. we don't like them people no more. It's complicated. Yeah, it is. Tell us about your upcoming book, Never Sand yeah. Sell the Land. Yeah. So uh, this is so happening in real time. Like the book, um, the first draft went out to reviewers. When you go through a university press, it has all these stages of peer review so the first stage of peer review has happened, and now we're on to the next stage of me making corrections and updates and really just trying to hone my voice and find consistency and all of that messy work. So I'm going to spend the next few months actually doing nothing but that. Um, and the book is really about the journey I took first starting in Shankleville, but also that journey um, where it took me in Deep East Texas to 36 places in, in two counties, you know, a map, initial map, it told me that there were only 14 black settlements in two counties. And when I began to spend time there um, and get to know people in nine different communities and conduct 50 interviews, um, I found that they're more like 34. In the, so either Google is lying or I'm lying. So <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> and that basis, that became the basis that that journey of doing walking with people and in interviews and really understanding the history of these places and what the descendant communities are doing to save them. Um, that all came through my doctoral research, which gave birth to Texas Freedom Colonies Project, which is a research initiative that I carry with me. And the book is about how that all was created but it's also about the stories themselves and the people themselves. And what is the toolbox that these people use to maintain ownership, challenge people who wanna do environmental damage to their land or extractive things on their land, 
well, how do people make a stand? What is the story? Um, what drives them to never sell the land? So it's really about the start of my work in this two county area um, and what I learned from folks in the two county area about land and its meaning and um, how to how to keep it and what it means to keep it. And I think you've just added a whole new consciousness to me about it is it's also about the burden of keeping it. You know, yes, we have these nice romantic stories, right? And people keep saying, you know, never sell the land. And those words that come up everywhere, right? Um, But how are we equipped to follow through on that order, on that demand? How? And I came across people who were equipped, right? These are people who were executives at Dow Chemical. These are well-to-do Black people that could keep their house in the suburbs. And I would find them in a barn in a, you know, in a small settlement in the middle of deep East Texas with like a straw hat on and overalls. And I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, this is where I'm going to go. This is home. And I was like, did you grow up here? No, we just visited here when I was a kid, but this is going to be home. And so that's why do some people have that, <laughs> that wherewithal and equipped to do that? And then other people want to, but are not. And so the book really explores all of that. Awesome. Oh, Tira, hi. Oh, awesome. Tira Austin is here. <laughs> the burden of keeping the land. You know, I, I've asked a bunch of questions. I want to turn to the audience because we're a little over time, but the conversation has been so deep. It has been so, so, so magical. I want to love to pull from the audience a few questions before mm-hmm. we let the good doctor go. And what we want to do is Tamika's going to share in the chat of how we can best follow you. But as we begin to pull mm-hmm. a few questions from the chat, let's say three to four, then Tamika, if you don't mind sharing in the chat how we can follow the good doctor. But I would love to ask this last question. And as we wait for questions from the chat. So what's, you know, um, well, actually, let me just ask this question because we already talked about what's next for you. What advice would you give to young scholars, activists, interested in pursuing heritage conservation and preserving work, especially in the context of Black historic settlements? What advice would you give these young people who are just getting started? I would tell them to read the work of a woman named Jody Skipper. Jody Skipper is an archaeologist, um, a professor. um, I believe she's at Old Miss. Black woman, and she had the same um, uh, members or the chair of her dissertation committee was also my chair, Maria Franklin, who's a Black feminist archaeologist. And her book is important, I think, to read um, because she talks about the emotional work, the emotional um, toll and the price and the benefits of doing this kind of work. And I think it's really, really vital that people go into this work being able to articulate what they wanna do and why they wanna do it. And her book is, I think, a good kind of bedside read to kind of think about what it might look like. She does powerful work Uh, around slavery and plantations and bringing people together to eat at the table at these places and unpack, you know, the the legacy and the history. So it's powerful kind of work. 
um, not just with Black settlements, but, you know, with this difficult history is my point. Um, and I would say, um, learn from your own story, think about your own story, because it doesn't matter. Um, think about what you have learned. I, I, I think that it's important to have had a career or have some life experience that then makes you want to go get a PhD and want to dig into and dive into something that you could spend your life doing. Because if it's just about getting a PhD, then go ahead, go to University of Phoenix online or whatever they do now and get your little piece of paper. But that's not what this process, this is a vocation. It's because it's not just about being able to teach. Um, it's about being able to um really fall in love with researching in the life of the mind. So you've got to love the researching life of the mind as much as you also love the people. Oh, and what's the challenge is, is finding the balance, which is why I've been afforded the opportunity to figure out a new balance this year, right? So the advice I would think about is um, find a balance for yourself um, around what you're going to give you know, our ancestors gave so much and they gave until they couldn't give anymore. And that martyrdom got us this far, but that same martyrdom is not what's going to get us the next part of the way. So, you know, rest is resistance. Um, and I would say, you know, go into this with a passion and a love for the learning as much as you have the passion and love for the justice. Yes, I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I I love that, you know, the love of the people, the love of the research, the love of justice. I, I really can appreciate the value of that. I've I've learned to appreciate doing what you love. And it sounds like a cliche, but I've often told myself, I'm like, PhD work is hard. It's a whole lot of hard. It's a sacrifice. And being able to love the people like you love the research is a good place. We got a few questions. One from Dakota. Hmm. Does archaeology play a role in your research of Black historic settlements, towns, and household? Uh, yes. Um, here are the two ways it plays a role. Um, for me personally, I mentioned Maria Franklin. She was on my dissertation committee, and she is a foremost scholar in um, African-American settlement archaeology. And without her work, um, some of her work began at the African burial ground in New York City, um, and she's worked alongside Blakely and other people who um, look at archaeology as not a solely, you know, biological science, but one that's about history and about oral tradition. And she she explained to me the full breadth and width of what historical archaeology really is. And it's been pivotal in my approach to how I piece together information where I go to find information, how I read landscapes, how I read the land um, to try to see what's no longer there, um, the evidences of place. Um, archaeology has been pivotal. Uh, readings in archaeology have made a difference. And then I would also say that archaeology is an essential part of the process of determining whether or not there's something that needs to be protected or something that's endangered whenever there's a new development or a new project. Without archaeology, often you can't find that physical proof 
of what was there or who was there. And so the relationship I have with archaeologists is very, very strong because they were the first people to, as a society of archaeologists in Texas, the Texas um, Society of Archaeologists have made it, they've committed to their membership using the atlas in their work. So when they do reports for environmental review firms, for uh, surveys before projects are going to come, they have as part of their first, what they call desktop audit, before they even go out in the field, they look in the atlas before they go out. So archaeologists, I love them. (laughs) Wow. I love that. I love that. And I'm a data nerd, so I love, love, love that. Whenever I see that map of Texas and all of those dots, I'm like, yeah, those places are established, they're known. And I love the fact that official bodies are using that. We have a question from Taniqua. And this is a very specific question, so I'm, I'm going to try my best to read it. What recourse or resolution would a descendant of the participants of the Port Royal Experiment have to reclaim the land of St. Helena Island, South Carolina, mm-hmm. that was taken, if not stolen, by the government? Now, I don't know this history, but I wonder if you're curious, if you Port Royal Experiment in St. Helena Island. Yes. So I would say that um, uh, even in a more, I don't want to say more advanced, but there are very well-established, strong, effective air property organizations in South Carolina and Georgia. And they uh, were created to deal with issues such as these. People live in these islands in a status that's called tenancy in common. So basically when you see plots of kinfolk all living, my house there, my house there, my house there, this all our land. You've heard that language before. That's tenancy in common. And that's where the air property comes in. Somebody dies off and then someone decides they can buy a partition or a part of that land. And so um, that also goes for trying to create a paper trail to so-called reclaim or show evidence that you still own land. There is a social, the uh, South Carolina air property. I can't remember. Actually, if you go to our page on black land, we have a list of organizations and we have South Carolina's air property guidebook on title searches in there. They're an organization that is committed to land reclamation and dealing with uh, air property and title issues and things of that nature. I would start with them since they're in South Carolina. Awesome, awesome, thank you. Well, I would like to say as we close out, thank you to Dr. Andrew Roberts for dropping on down tonight and joining us tonight at Southern Soul, Soul Thursdays. And sharing with us not only her passion, her research, but her love of the people so that we can better understand how to not only never sell the land, not only to protect the land, but to protect the stories, the heritage, that bond that we have that's invisible. However, just like Frankie Beverly and Mays, when it plays, we just go there. Thank you for being you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. 
And for those of you all listening, this um, replay of this show, this podcast will be available in a couple weeks. So thank you for Dr. Andrew Roberts. We shared in the chat how people can follow you. Any last words you would like to say before you log off? Thank you for creating the space for me. Um, I am a work in progress and we'll be talking about how my work is a work in progress this coming Monday. Um, if you go to my website or go to our Facebook page, please follow us on social media and you'll learn about this journey that I'm taking um, over this year as a transition. Um, and I'd love to take all of you with me. Um, thank you again for making this space. And um, I'm, I'm just honored that that you would allow me to, to share the messiness of my work at the state that it's in. And I invite everyone to try out the resources and please visit the Atlas. Awesome. Awesome. Tamika has shared in the chat where you can find her on Facebook at Andrea R. Roberts. Also, you can find her at andrearobertsphd.com. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.